let's begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to the Mother of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We fly to your patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin, amen. Most Holy Virgin Mary, help of Christians, how sweet it is to come to your feet, imploring your perpetual help. If earthly mothers cease not to remember their children, how can you, the most loving of all mothers, forget me? Grant then to me, I implore you, your perpetual help in all my necessities, in every sorrow, and especially in all my temptations. I ask for your unceasing help for all who are now suffering. Help the weak, cure the sick, convert sinners. Grant through your intercessions many vocations to the religious life. Obtain for us, O Mary, help of Christians, that having invoked you on earth, we may love you and eternally thank you in heaven. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy Feast of Mary, the Mother of God and the World Day of Peace. I'm Anna Mitchell, and welcome to this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show. Alongside Matt Swain, we head to the archives today in which we will take a look at some of our favorite interviews of the past on Mary, our mother, and the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the fact that we're in a new year. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show, and Mike Aquilina is back with us from FathersOfTheChurch.com, author of many books, the one most pertinent to this discussion, Keeping Mary Close, Devotion to Our Lady Through the Ages. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Annie. So we're going to be talking about the relationship of Jesus with his mother during the time of his ministry on earth. Now, let's start, though, by kind of laying the groundwork prior to his baptism in the Jordan what do we know about their relationship? Well, we know that Jesus was subject to his parents. You know, he was, he was under the law, as St. Paul tells us, and so he was obedient to them. He honored them. You know, that's the commandment, honor your father and your mother. And he was there under the, uh, under the rule of the law. He accepted that. And, um, and, and we're told that after he's found in the temple that he went home with them and he was obedient to them. You know, it's the last word we have on his childhood. So it's the word that really defines his childhood. That's obedience. And, uh, and it's funny because, um, you know, what we, what we, uh, what we know of him uh, is, that, is that he stayed with his family and he, he took care of his mother after presumably his, his father passed from this life. So, so uh, I, I suppose we can say, you know, he's, he's like the caricature of a millennial, you know, somebody who's living <laughs> in his parents' basement until he's 30 years old. Um, but, but you're right, we do see a decisive uh, change when Jesus begins his public ministry, when he goes from the carpenter to the rabbi, and, uh, and it changes his relationship with his mother. Well, let's talk about that. How did the Church Fathers uh, see that change in dynamic, in that mother-son dynamic, after his baptism in the Jordan? Well, they see the, the baptism in the Jordan as the boundary, as the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They saw that, that Jordan River as, as the boundary between the law and the Spirit. And Jesus is passing from one to the other. And as he does so, he passes from disciple to master. 
he passes from subjection to his parents to mastery, really. Um, Mary, at that point, becomes his disciple. So it, it changes their relationship. There's kind of a reversal going on there. It's interesting that St. Luke um, tells that story and, uh, and includes some curious uh, episodes afterwards involving the Blessed Virgin Mary. But he never again mentions Mary by name, hmm. never mentions her by name through the rest of his gospel, not even at the foot of the cross. He doesn't mention her name. So Jesus then becomes uh, becomes primary, really. He, he, he always has been in terms of uh, his deity, but now, in terms of his humanity, he's coming into his own. Mm-hmm. He's emerging as the rabbi. He's emerging as the Messiah. You mentioned those two curious episodes in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to ask you about those, because in them, it almost seems like Jesus is sort of rebuking his mother, or at least diminishing her. What are we to make of that? Yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're something. They're, they're startling, as a matter of fact, because they see, seem almost out of character for him. You know, we read the one in, in Luke 8. Then his mother and his brethren came to him, but they could not reach him for the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brethren are standing outside desiring to see you. But he said to them, my mother and my brethren are those who hear the word of God and do it. And then a, a few cha- chapters later, we have this other episode, and, and, and it goes like this. As he said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that gave you suck. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And, and that's a fascinating thing that's happening. It it's almost sounds like a rebuke, but it's not. It's a correction. It's a correction. Uh, you know, we see Jesus here subordinating his natural family, to his supernatural family. Uh, if Mary's to be honored, she's going to be honored not primarily for her role in his conception and birth, but rather because she heard the word of God and kept it. That's a beautiful thing. Mary, from then on, is honored because she has the qualities that make her the model disciple. So Jesus is holding up his mother in both of these episodes as someone who fulfills the, the, uh, the qualifications for disciple. Yeah. Could you go into that a little deeper? What are those, those qualifying uh, traits that Mary exemplifies for us? Well, well, look look at what she did through the rest of his ministry. She was a follower of Jesus, and, and that meant literally that she followed him. That's the amazing thing, that in chapter 8 and chapter 11, she's there. She's always there in close proximity to her son so that she could hear him, so that she could, she could express her desire to see him, uh, you know, even though a crowd separated them. That's what we want to be. We want to be followers who are always close to Jesus. In that, the hymn that we sing during Lenten time, you know, we, we know that Mary is close to Jesus to the last, and that's what, what we want to be. We want to be close to Jesus to the last. So, so um, she really does come forward as, uh, as, as, as showing us the path. She stays with him. What's interesting is that we, we, we encounter a lot of people in, in the New Testament, and most of them fail in discipleship. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus. Judas, uh, he betrays Jesus. All of the other disciples run away at the, at the, at the time of the crucifixion. They leave, but Mary never 
shows that kind of failure. She never fails in the pages of the New Testament, and that makes her almost unique for the characters we come to know well in in the pages of the Gospels. So we're to follow Jesus, and we're to follow him in a steadfast way, just as Mary did. Yeah, uh, particularly when you look at her at the foot of the cross. Now, Mike, we, we, we certainly can't purport to know the mind of God, nor do I think we can purport to really know the mind of his Immaculate Mother either. But with that in mind, Mike, as a parent, how difficult do you think it was for this woman to let go of her son as the will of the Father called her to do? Well, think about it. You know, with, with us, I mean, I have I have six children, and uh, and and now um, four of them are adults, and uh, in just a couple months, it'll be five. Five of them will be adults, and and it, it's hard to let them go because you know you have your experience, and also you have the novel that you've already written of their lives. You think you know what's best for them, um, but you have to have that abandonment, and Mary really does teach us to have that abandonment to the will of God, to trust God, and to trust that these children will have their own way of discernment, will will have their um, their uh, their own insight into what their future should be. Not to mention humility. <laughs> humility, yes. Well, that that's what really. Uh, uh, enables us to uh, to make that step because uh, because there there may come a time and there will come a time when our children children will likely know what's better for themselves than than, than we know than we think what? we know are you kidding me <laughs> Oh, you got to love it. Yours are still small. Enjoy it while while you can. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly will. We've been talking to Mike Aquilina. And Mike, if listeners want to uh, get a copy of Keeping Mary Close or connect with you, where can they go? Fathersofthechurch.com. It's the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com franchise opportunities available. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. EWTN podcasts are the perfect companion for busy Catholics everywhere. Your favorite EWTN programs are waiting for you to listen to on your time. With on-demand access to audio, you can pause and pick up right where you left off anytime, anywhere. 
Just subscribe by using your mobile device's free podcast app. Find old favorites or discover something new. EWTN Podcasts. They're waiting for you. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Steve Ray from CatholicConvert.com, who is uh, talking some joyful mysteries in Scripture this morning, and he's been to the places where those things happen. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Matt. thought it would be cool to go through each of the uh, the mysteries, the joyful, and talk about how they are in the Bible. These are very biblical prayers. So today we can do the joyful mysteries in the Bible. Now, you know, interesting, most of them all come from Luke. The Annunciation comes from Luke. The Visitation comes from Luke. The uh, Presentation comes from Luke. Finding in the Temple comes from Luke. The only one that Matthew shares then is Nativity. So you better, we all better uh, thank St. Luke for the five joyful mysteries. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, Mark and John don't actually have the Nativity story. It's it's just Matthew and Luke. so, but the first one of these is the uh, the first joyful mystery, the Annunciation. You know, and uh, you and I talk about this all the time. In you know, explaining the Rosary to our Protestant brothers and sisters, we say, well, the first part of Hail Mary, the Hail Mary comes from Scripture, and that's almost true because the words Hail Mary, full of grace, that's not exactly what's in the Bible, right? Right. We say Hail Mary, but Mary's not in the Bible in that place. Instead, there's the word kaharitomene. It's a very fancy Greek word. Greek is much more explicit than English. And what the angel said is, Hail, you who were in the past tense made full of grace and who retained that status at this moment in the present. So it's a past and a present word. So she, it's done to her in the passive sense. You who have been made full of grace in the past and retain it are still in that state today. And full of grace means full of the life of God, this, the grace of God. That's his life. And if there's the fullness to the, like, overflowing with the life of God, that means there's nothing in there that can contradict it, like sin. <laughs> so here we have really a statement of her immaculate conception and her sinlessness, even here in the um, message of the angel. And one other point about that. John Paul II says that that is her name in the eyes of God. Just like Simon was renamed Peter, Abram was renamed Abraham, in God's eyes, Mary was renamed Kahare Tomene, the one who is full of grace. Well, speaking of biblical prayers uh, and the visitation, there's so much that we could talk about. Uh, We've talked about uh, Mary as Ark of the Covenant and all the parallels there before, uh, but not, not many people realize that there's a parallel between the Magnificat that she prays at the Visitation and another passage also from one of the historical books. In Yes, and it shows one of the things that it does display is that Mary knows her Bible because she understood the Magnificat sung by Hannah, who is also in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah has a miraculous baby, too, not a virgin birth, but she, in her old age, gives birth to the prophet Samuel. And she sings out, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And John Paul II, quoting him again, said that Mary's Magnificat of the New Testament is based upon Hannah's Magnificat of the Old Testament to apply to her, just like the Magnificat of the Old Testament. We're going to talk a lot more about the Nativity. We just mentioned a little bit about it uh, there at the beginning, but I want to skip ahead to the presentation in the temple because this is one that can be very mysterious for people to try and 
wrap their minds around. Uh, but it helps us understand that one of the weirdest depictions of Mary, which is Mary walking around with swords sticking out of her, that's actually a biblical kind of – it's got a biblical <laughs> right. basis. It's a very haunting image of her. And when the – you know, can you imagine she's going to the presentation. She's so proud. She's got – she's a 15-year-old girl with this brand-new – 40 day only. He's only 40 days old because that's when they had to do the presentation. He's already shed his blood for us once, Matt, because he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the first time he shed his blood for us, actually. And 40 days old, this pudgy little baby in her arms, and she's so proud, and she takes him to the temple to present him. And this grisly old prophet Simeon comes up and he says, and a sword will pierce your soul also. This is when you look at the seven sorrows of Mary. There's that devotion called the seven sorrows. This is one of them that the, he says to her, a sword's going to pierce your soul also. Now, Mary doesn't know everything. She's not God. She doesn't know everything. And she I just think she's wondering, what does that mean? And then she found out what that meant at the crucifixion when, when we see, like in this picture on top of Calvary, the sword in her chest. Because she, there's a saying that there's nothing more grievous than to have a children die before their parents, for a parent to have to bury their children. And this is the case with Mary. She had to watch her son humiliated and crucified. Yeah. Well, there's... Uh... Another sorrow here. It's actually so. That prophecy of Simeon and Anna is the. Uh, it's the first sorrow of Mary among the in the seven sorrows devotion. But it's also a joyful mystery of the rosary, which is strange. But the third sorrow of the seven sorrows devo devotion is also connected to a joyful ministry mystery because the third sorrow is the loss of the child Jesus. And anybody who's ever been in a grocery store and turned around and is like, "Where's my kid?" <laughs> understands this one. Oh, yeah. We just had announced two nights ago that we're ready to have grandbaby number 21. And right. when we take and we're going to have two of them with us today. And believe me, I watch them like a hawk. I never I would be. Well, it is a terrifying thought. And imagine finding Jesus in the temple. This is a joyful mystery. But like you said, one of the sorrowful mysteries is losing Jesus because they baby Jesus. When, uh, when they grow up, these boys, when, men and women travel separately in caravans, and then in the evening, the families come back together again. Men walk with men, women walk with women. And when the boys are 12 years old, so time for bar mitzvah, before that, the young boys walk with their mothers and all the kids. As they get to the 12-year age, 13, they start walking with the men after their bar mitzvah. Here's Jesus Mary thought she was with Joseph, and Joseph thought he was with Mary. And at the end of the day, they said, where's Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Oh, no, we've lost the Son of God. And they go back to look for him. That was at least 24 hours that they did not know where he was. And by the way, it shows us again that Mary doesn't know everything. She hasn't been given insight into everything that's going on. She has to trust the Lord like the rest of us. And she said, when their parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Mary was, she was shocked by this. It says that they were astonished, not only that they found him there, but what he was doing, but also, why would you do this to us? So it, it is really a, um, it's, you know, almost all of these um, 
mysteries here, Matt, have a joyful aspect, but I could go back through them all and show you a sorrowful aspect to every single one of them, because every one of them also has a sorrowful. I have a talk I give called The Twelve Unknown Sorrows of Mary. We've done that on your show already. So all of these five also have a sorrow attached to them. Yeah, I can't help but think of that uh, movie Inside Out, uh, probably the last really great Pixar movie that was made uh, where you've got the characters of joy and sorrow, and the joy always wants to try and shut down the sorrow, and the sorrow feels like they're ruining everything. Uh, and at the end of the movie, you realize that all those things are usually kind of connected to one another, those joys yes, and those sorrows. Yes, that's exactly right. So, yep, that's the yeah. same with these. Well, Steve Ray, if our listeners want to connect with you and perhaps um, go to some of the places where these things actually happen, how do they do so? CatholicConvert.com. Thanks so much, Steve. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. You too. I'm Matt Swaim. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. This is Father Stephen Alcott from St. Gertrude Parish in Madeira. St. Bernard's Prayer to the Virgin Mary. Maiden and mother, daughter of thine own Son, beyond all creatures lowly and lifted high, of the eternal design, the cornerstone, thou art she who did man's substance glorify, so that its own maker did not eschew even to be made of its mortality. Within thy womb, the love was kindled new by generation of whose warmth supreme this flower to bloom in peace eternal grew. Here thou to us art the full noonday beam of love revealed. Below, to mortal sight, hope that forever springs in living stream. Lady, thou art so great and hast such might that whoso crave grace nor to thee repair their longing even without wing seeketh flight. Thy charity doth not only him upbear who prays, but in thy bounty's large excess, thou oftentimes dost even forerun the prayer. In thee is pity, in thee tenderness, in thee magnificence, in thee the sum of all that in creation most can bless. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Father Stephen Alcott. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Liz Lev, the art historian, guide to Rome in Italy, author of How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, and The Silent Night, a history of St. Joseph as depicted in art. Liz, good morning. Good morning to you. It is good to have you. And we are going to be talking about the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome in light of the octave of the great feast of the Nativity that we are celebrating. But before we actually get to the Christmas connections specifically, Liz, can you just remind us, start us off with the history of this magnificent church? 
Well, can I just start with the fact that I love that you love St. Mary Major so much because I Thank do you. think it's really, it's it just because of my tremendous love of St. Peter's, I can't say it's the most beautiful church in Rome, but sure. it's, it's, just, it's such a magnificent church. And it's, uh, it's a church that is 1,600 years old. It was built in the 5th century, about 435, 440 A.D. It was built after the Council of Ephesus, and it really was a celebration of the great declaration of Mary as Theotokos, the God-bearer. And it was constructed on the top of the Esquiline Hill, so, you know, the residence of senators, and the, when you go to museums and see really beautiful things from ancient Rome, they mm-hmm. usually were unearthed in the Esquiline Hill. And so this magnificent space, this magnificent church crowning the top of the hill, that amazingly, for 1,600 years, has really remained more or less intact. So unlike St. Peter's, which was knocked down and rebuilt, or St. John Ladder, which burnt down about a thousand times, St. Mary Major is still those same walls that were there when they were constructed under Pope Sixtus III. Okay, now I guess the whole Our Lady of the Snow things is is not exactly a Christmas connection per se, but it is fun to think about in this season, don't you think? Well, I think the whole the Our Lady of the Snows or the the I, I think it actually does um, help to reflect on. St. Mary Major is Rome's Bethlehem. So even though the event takes place in August, so probably not Christmas time, but it's the uh, it's a reminder of the so-called legendary founding of the church in which we would find a husband and wife, two lay people, and a pope, Liberius, who are all thinking about how can we bring the devotion to Mary. Now, mind you, this is the fourth century. We've built churches to Peter, to Paul, but we really need a church to Mary. We need something to bring Mary into the Roman landscape. And on the same evening, which was the night of August 4th, all three of these people had the same dream, same vision, Mary who came to them and said, tomorrow there will be a miracle on the Esquiline Hill, and where that miracle takes place, build me a church. And so sure enough, everybody wakes up on August 5th, mind you, and there's snow on the Esquiline Hill. And we all know that if, even if it snows in February, you make front page news <laughs> around the world, snow in August actually falls under the heading of a miracle, and that the Pope would have traced those outlines. And even though, you know, the historians and the classicists and the archaeologists have all dismissed that story, that story remains part and parcel of this church in that it's considered its official consecration date, and that every year on, uh, on August 5th, they will open up one of the coffers of the ceiling of the church, and they'll drop in white rose petals to cool. simulate the miraculous snows. And if you're there in the evenings, they blow out white foam. So it's actually snows oh, wow. in the square. You can stand in front of St. Santa Maria Maggiore Square, and you can be in the nevicata of uh, Santa Maria Maggiore. Wow. That sounds incredible. Which is cooler, the roses <laughs> or the foam? I think one is one is more solemn and one is more fun. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned— Catholics ca- are good at both. <laughs> exactly. That's why one of the reasons why I love being Catholic. Um, now, you mentioned the, the Council of Ephesus, um, which focused on Mary as the Theotokos, the mother 
of God. Why was it so important to have that title for Mary in that time? Well, pretty much as soon as Christianity was legalized, and to a certain extent even beforehand, but as soon as Christianity was legalized in 313, there are people who are constantly trying to reinterpret what it means to be Christian. So one of the most heated debates involved the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus sort of God and mostly man or kind of man and mostly God or is one part consume the other and can they coexist? So all of these different ways that people kept trying to kind of diminish, particularly the divinity of Christ. So Jesus is the greatest creation, but not not the creator. And so another way in the fifth century, after that first heresy had been put down in uh, 325 in the Council of Nicaea, it sort of rears its head in the new form in which you start saying, well, Mary isn't mother of God, which of course makes you start wondering, well, then who's her kid? So it was very, very important on two levels. One was to establish, again, the divinity of Christ, but it also lays a groundwork. I mean, think of that terminology, God-bearer. It lays a groundwork for the importance of Mary, an importance that's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow in the history of our Church. Now, tell us about why it is so fitting to call the Basilica of St. Mary Major Rome's Bethlehem as we reflect on the Nativity of our Lord. Well, I mean, of course, having a church that is dedicated to uh, the Mother of God, and then in the wonderful decoration that was put into the 5th century. So as soon as the church is, is built, they decorate it with this amazing series of mosaics, and the mosaics along the sidewalls lead in with stories of Old Testament patriarchs, with God promising something's going to happen, he's making a covenant. But in the triumphal arch mosaics, we see the fulfillment of that covenant, not with Jesus' passion, but with the Incarnation. So we look upon the scenes of the Annunciation, the presentation at the Temple, the Three Magi, this idea of, of God coming into the world. So already the culmination of the decoration of the Church is bringing us very, very, very front and center the idea of the nativity or God coming into the world. And then, just to add to that, in the 7th century, an incredibly important relic was brought out of the uh, was brought out of the Holy Land and sent to Rome. And that relic was the fragments of pieces of wood, which were the fragments of the crib of Christ. So with that, now we actually have part of the manger in which, you know, the Christ child is first laid in that church. And all these things begin to swirl around and create a kind of locus in St. Mary Major where you can feel like you're going to Bethlehem. This becomes extremely important after the 7th century when the takeover of the Holy Land by, by, by the Islamic um, peoples makes it extremely dangerous and difficult for people to travel there as pilgrims. So Rome becomes the new Bethlehem. So beautiful. And this is also a place, I mean, just to, to look back at history, where you can find some of the early spotlighting of St. Joseph as an important member of the Holy Family as well, correct? 
Well, of course, the, the, the great fun of those triumphal arch mosaics is that after being absent since the dawn of Christian art, St. Joseph makes his first appearance in the history of art in those apse mosaics. He doesn't try to show up once, kind of shyly peeking in in the corner. He actually pops in five times and becomes oh. really a protagonist. So you have Mary and Joseph working together uh, in, uh, in this plan for salvation. Very, very beautiful images. Now, going back to the Blessed Mother as we close out our conversation here, Liz, I mean, of course— St. Mary Major, famous for housing the incredibly famous icon of the Salus Populi Romani. And I'm hoping that you can reflect on this idea to close us out, that the mother of God, the Theotokos, does not limit her motherhood to the infant king, but extends it to all of us. I think that's something that uh, Rome has known since the 6th century. Uh, the age of that icon is disputed, but we do understand that that is the image, the the, the small wooden icon of the Madonna Salus Populi Romani, the Mary, the salvation of the Roman people, was carried by Pope St. Gregory the Great during the times of plague in and, 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 and 590. And it's, a, it's an icon to which the the Romans have prayed in times of danger, whether it's danger of health, danger of invasion, whatever whatever danger may confront it. And a little bit, you know, after the unification of Italy and after the sort of secularization of the modern age, um, people kind of losing that sense of the importance of that icon. And, and I think really one of the great things that Pope Francis has done since the first day of his pontificate, day one, is that he has made it a habit to go and pray before that, that icon. And this is this is the head of the universal church who is praying for his whole church every time he takes a trip to wherever it is in the world. He prays there before the trip, and he prays there after the trip. And I think that's a really important way that Francis, Pope Francis has made a wonderful uh, uh, witness of this holy mother who is the mother of the entire church. And we're not just talking about whether we're facing the pandemic, although he put the, the work beautifully to use during the pandemic, but he's not only the pandemic, in all of the things that we need, the crises we face in our lives, we can bring them to the Blessed Mother. Amen. So beautifully put. We've been talking to Liz Lev. You can find her at elizabeth-lev.com as well as mastersgallerierome.com. Liz, really appreciate the conversation today and Buon Natale. Buon Natale to you. Thank you very much. And you're listening to a special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show on this feast of Mary, the Mother of God. By the way, Happy New Year. It's 35 minutes past the hour. A prayer of St. Bonaventure. Pierce, O most sweet Lord Jesus, my inmost soul with the most joyous and healthful wound of thy love. And with true, calm, and most holy apostolic charity, that my soul may ever languish and melt with entire love and longing for thee, may yearn for thee and for thy courts, may long to be dissolved and to be with thee. Grant that my soul may hunger after thee, the bread of angels, the refreshment of holy souls, our daily and super substantial bread, having all sweetness and savor and every delightful taste. 
May my heart ever hunger after and feed upon thee, whom the angels desire to look upon, and may my inmost soul be filled with the sweetness of thy savor. May it ever thirst for thee, the fountain of life, the fountain of wisdom and knowledge, the fullness of the house of God. May it ever compass thee, seek thee, find thee, meditate on thee, speak of thee, and do all for the praise and glory of thy name, with humility and discretion, with love and delight, with ease and affection, with perseverance to the end. And be thou alone ever my hope, my entire confidence, my riches, my delight, my pleasure, my joy, my rest and tranquility, my peace, my sweetness, my food, my refreshment, my refuge, my help, my wisdom, my portion, my possession, my treasure, in whom may my mind and my heart be ever fixed and firm and rooted immovably. Amen. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Mark Watkins. now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Alexis Walkenstein. She's editor of the Ex Libris of Fulton Sheen from Pauline Books. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I am doing just fine and happy to be talking to you again today as we reflect on a passage from Fulton Sheen. We're going to look at something he said about the Blessed Mother, the Mother of the Divine. Can you give us an overview? Yes, you know, Fulton Sheen really had a particular devotion to Our Lady, and so I wanted to have a, a few little sections in the book that, that shared some of what he, how he helped us understand the Mother of the Divine. So in the section dedicated to divine love, it's only fitting that we look at the Mother of Divinity, the Mother of God. And he talks about, he relates Mary um, it helps us to understand that since men are unprepared for a revelation of the heavenly image of love, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, and his birth prepared on earth, an image of love that is not divine, but can lead to the divine. And that's Our Lady. What stands out to you in particular in this passage, Alexis? You know, I feel like what Fulton Sheen is trying to do is to show us this idea of divine love is truly beyond our grasp without grace. Mm. But God in his mercy has given us a connector to understand the divine, and it's, and it's Our Lady. It's Our Blessed Mother. She's not God. She's not divinity, but she's flesh, human, like all of us. But he chooses her to be the transporter, so to speak, to carry his divinity to the earth, um, to bring Jesus, the one who would become a man and condescend to the earth, to take on all sin and death for, for new life and resurrection— he comes through a woman, through someone that we can relate to. And I think that that's amazing. And Fulton Sheen does a marvelous job of, if we expound upon the passage, of, of explaining how Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, so she, the Blessed Mother, is the mediatrix between Christ and us. And I guess I should point out, too, this is a passage from his book, The World's First Love, Mary, the Mother of God. And, you know, Alexis, I think it's funny, maybe because I work with Matt Swaim, who is a convert to Catholicism, who now works with converts all day long at the Coming Home Network. Um, you know, I know that many Protestants see devotion to the Blessed Mother at least uh, as an initial stumbling block to Catholicism. But 
I was I was so encouraged when when Archbishop Sheen discusses in this passage, he sees her as as the opening, as a door to faith for those who don't know faith at all. Yes, and I think it's it's profound and gentle. You know, as, as Mother Mary is gentle, God is so gentle with us in the way that He presents Himself, which I think is really profound. You know, He He goes on to say, "She is the earthly principle of love that leads to the heavenly principle of love." So we have to have this ideal on earth. You know, we have to remember that she is conceived without sin. She is the immaculate conception. So even though she is like unto us. But she is the highest of all creation, and so she is the earthly principle of love that leads to the heavenly principle of love. She can carry him because she's sinless, because she has such high favor. Alexis, why did you choose this particular passage uh, to include in this? I mean, listeners should know this is a, this is not a long book that you put together of passages from Fulton Sheen. So with his vast body of work, I know that you really had to to pick and choose from it. What what really brought this one to light for you that you would choose it for this book? Well, I, I do, like you said, I think that there are some other denominations that have a misunderstanding of the role of Mary, and Mary has such a particular role in salvation history that I don't think we can talk about Jesus without talking about Mary. And so to give uh, readers, um, be it, you know, in the Catholic faith denomination, who Fulton Sheen, of course, is a bishop in the Catholic Church, a saint in the making, but for those denominations that he's so very well attracted, all through um, his life through his television shows and broadcasts. Um, there are many other people that are going to be exploring here. And, you know, my dad's a Jewish convert. Mary could be the stumbling block, but, but Fulton Sheen is saying, no, Mary is the grace where there is no grace. She's the advent where there is no Christmas. And she really, you know, for those who lack faith, he says in this particular passage, are to be recommended particularly to Mary as a means to finding Christ. Because God, who chose Mary as the way to come to us, surely Mary is the one who can unlock, like you said, that door of faith for us to have a deeper understanding of who we are and who Jesus is for us. Amen to that. And, you know, Fulton Sheen says in here, she can lift the fear because her foot crushed the serpent of evil. She can do away with dread because she stood at the foot of the cross when human guilt was washed away. And we were reborn in Christ. And, you know, I think, Alexis, and, and I'll, I'll, I'd love to get your reflection on this if you agree. I think a lot of times our Blessed Mother is working behind the scenes in her humility in the lives of those people who, who particularly find her as a stumbling block. Agree. I agree to that. And I, I can relate that to my own faith journey with my dad, who's a convert, and he was building a little, engineering a little devotional area in our yard uh, with, with a Marian statue because my mom wanted that for her birthday. And he, you know, he wasn't Catholic yet, and he was kind of like, okay. And he engineered it. He was a lighting engineer, and he, he was on his knees every day, and he was talking to her and asking her, you know, are you real, and who are you? And it was really Mary who, who then led my dad uh, as a chaperone to World Youth Day in Denver with John Paul II. So working behind the scenes here is Mary, who doesn't take the credit, but leads my dad to the vicar of Christ on earth, to the papacy, to her son. And it is true. It's, she, she never holds us to herself, but she, she always leads us to Jesus. And so for people who do have a stumbling block about 
um, you know, well, do you just stay stay with Mary? Well, Mary, Mary's bringing all of her children, all of God's children, as as God commanded on the cross. You know, woman, behold your son; son, behold your mother. It's a particular commission from the cross for her to take us on as children, and then also lead us back to to the to the divine one, to her son. What an awesome story! God bless your father. Yeah. Yes. I love it. Amen. I love it. The book is Ex Libris Fulton J. Sheen. We've been talking to Alexis Walkenstein. And Alexis, if listeners want to pick up a copy of this little book, where can they find it? Oh, and I hope they will. You can go to pauline.org and order it from the Pauline Media Nuns. And it's in certain Catholic bookstores around the country and on Amazon. All right. And we'll have it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com as well. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you, Anna. I'm Anna Mitchell. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare. 844-334-3245. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside, so give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Hey Alexa, how many ways can I get EWTN? You can get EWTN on television, via cable and satellite, on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Google Play. You can get EWTN radio in your car, on Sirius XM channel 130, and on the go, on any mobile device with the EWTN app. And here's the best news, now you can get EWTN's great programming on me. with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Danielle Bean. She's online at CatholicMom.com. You can check out her girlfriend's podcast. Invite her to hold a retreat at your parish. You can connect with her through DanielleBean.com. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning. How are you? I am doing great. Let's talk about the new year, Danielle. Uh, It's a time when many people make resolutions. Uh, First of all, are you a New Year's resolution kind of person? You know, I'm not. (laughs) I I like this time of year to kind of reflect on the blessings of the past year, look forward to good things in the new year. But I think being specific about it is not something that jives really well with my personality. So I don't tend to make big goals at this time of year. I know it's a popular thing to do, but it's also a popular thing to fail at. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. 
I think I'm sparing myself that pain. Well, that said, I know that you do like to make goals, even if they're not necessarily uh, New Year's goals, if you will. So when it comes to to setting up resolutions in in your life, whether it be, you know, physical, relational, spiritual or whatever, do you think that big lofty goals are a good idea or should we keep the bar low? Yeah, I mean, I think somewhere in between. I think we, it's important to be challenging yourself. It's important to examine the various parts of your life where we're always meant to be improving, you know, spiritually in our relationships and um, taking care of ourselves physically. Uh, so it, it, it is important to challenge ourselves. But, you know, know thyself is a really important mm-hmm. thing this time of year. You know, know if you're, you're, you tend to bite off more than you can chew, if you tend to set up lofty goals and then just crash and burn and throw the whole thing away. I think it's really important to set a goal that challenges you enough, that takes you outside of your comfort zone, perhaps, you know, so that that's how we all improve, that's how we grow, that's how we change, but then also be realistic about it. And maybe when you're looking at what your New Year's goals are going to be, don't try to fix every single thing in your life. Uh Focus on a few doable things, maybe even just focus on one area of your life. If you're looking to improve your spiritual life, if you're looking to improve your your marriage or your your relationship with your kids, or um, if you're looking to improve your physical health, pick something small and doable, but then do challenge yourself. Well, I want to spend the majority of our conversation talking about spiritual goals, but but first I want to ask you about you know, physical fitness, and a lot of people uh, make the resolution that they want to lose weight in the new year. I know you're a runner, Danielle. What is the overall benefit? I mean, other than just losing weight, what do you think is the overall benefit of imp- of improving your physical activity to your life overall? Yeah, I mean, physical activity is one of those things, physical health, the way you eat and the way you, you move your body on a daily basis is one of those things that affects every other part of your life, I find, that you you improve your energy, you improve your mood, you improve your productivity. You know, those are things that we all say we want, and I think we all know that, you know, and this time of year, it's really easy to kind of just slide into the way we've been eating over the holidays. I just tweeted, I could continue to eat like this and double my weight in 2018, yeah. because you get into these habits, of course and we're all creatures of habit and once you've um kind of gone a couple of weeks here over the holidays of eating a lot of different kinds of junk food because let's face it it's everywhere this time of year and there's always another reason to celebrate but it's important to kind of jolt yourself out of that and recognize I could be sliding in this direction or I could make efforts and improve in the other direction. And it truly is one of those things that affects every other area of your life. So it absolutely is important to, to make it a priority as a gift to yourself because you're meant to care for your body. God gave you your body as a gift and you need to care for it. But then as a gift to the people around you because it improves your mood, it makes you a happier person, it makes you a more productive person, you can be a more helpful, cheerful person in your household, in your workplace, among friends and family. So truly, it's a gift that you're meant to give to your your community and to your family. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to spiritual goals specifically, Danielle, how important is specificity in this regard? I mean, to say that I want to pray more this year is just such an ambiguous goal that I would think that it's it's hard to imagine that you could actually succeed in praying more. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's important to keep that in mind, that saying, oh, I want to pray more, I want to 
I want to grow closer to Jesus this year. You know, that's great. I mean, those are good goals. But then talk about how you're going to specifically do that. Break that down into something tangible, not overwhelming, you know, not saying that you're going to pray all the mysteries of the rosary every morning on your knees before the kids get up. You know, that's probably not a doable thing or something you're going to keep up for a long time. But maybe something small. Maybe say, you know what, I want to, I want to do 15 minutes of spiritual reading or reading Scripture in the morning before work or before the kids get up. Or say, you know, I want to, I want to pray um, the, the family rosary uh, during this commute that we have uh, three days a week or whatever it is. Just find some area of your life where you're able to make a small commitment but a meaningful commitment. But once again, this is one of those places that just grows from there. You know, God's not going to be outgiven. So if you're giving some more of your time and energy and attention to Jesus, he's going to return the favor, and you're going to find other ways, other times in your life that open up to grow in that, that spiritual path that you're looking for. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, just to, to kind of piggyback on that idea, you know, come up with something that's doable, uh, that's specific that you can start with. But also, if you're looking at a big, lofty goal, how important is it to come up with sort of an incremental plan of action so that you can get to that high level? Right. I mean, I think that's that's so important. That's such an important point that break it down. Start with that big goal and work backwards from there. What can I do this week that's going to move me toward that bigger goal, you know? And then what can I do the following week? Or, you know, reassess yourself on a regular basis. And I find that that's really key because if you're not kind of checking in with yourself on a regular basis when it comes to spiritual goals especially, you're just going to kind of drift off into the wilderness and you're never going to quite get there. And, and you know, when we're talking about getting there with regard to spiritual goals. Well, getting there is heaven, right? That's what we're all talking about here. So, um, you know, keep that in mind, too, that we've got long-term goals going on here, you know? You might live to be 120. And so what what can you do today that's going to improve you in in your spiritual life, going to help you to grow closer to Jesus, help you to know yourself spiritually, help you to know Jesus and the saints and Mary on a more intimate level? What can you do that's, you know, an everyday doable goal, something that you can break down like that. And then those small steps really will move you toward those bigger goals. And if you fail, try again? Yes. <laughs> That's the great part. There's always another opportunity. Get yourself to confession and start over. Amen to that. Uh, certainly, uh, Lent begins on Valentine's Day this year, so that could be your, uh, your pickup point. Uh, Danielle, if listeners want to connect with you, where can they go? They can go to daniellebean.com or catholicmom.com. I'd love to meet you there. All right, Danielle, thank you so much. We'll look forward to talking to you again next time. Thanks. God bless you. So we've got a couple of minutes here before we need to close out the Sunrise Morning Show for the day. And I thought I would take this time to share some excerpts from Pope Benedict XVI's general audience on January 2nd, 2008. He was reflecting on today's feast day, the Feast of Mary, the Mother of God. He says... In these days of festivity, we have paused to contemplate the depiction of the nativity in the crib. At the center of this scene, we find the Virgin Mother, who offers the baby Jesus for the contemplation of all those who come to adore the Savior, the shepherds, the poor people of Bethlehem, the Magi from the East. The devotion of the Christian people, he says, has always considered the birth of Jesus and the divine motherhood of Mary as two aspects of the same mystery of the incarnation of the divine word. So it has never thought of the nativity as a thing of the past. We are contemporaries of the shepherds, the magi, of Simeon and Anna. And as we go with them, we are filled with joy because God wanted to be the God with us. 
and has a mother who is our mother. All the other titles with which the church honors Our Lady then derive from the title Mother of God, but this one is fundamental. Let us think of the privilege of the Immaculate Conception, that is, of Mary being immune to sin from conception. She was preserved from any stain of sin because she was to be the mother of the Redeemer. He says, And we know that all these privileges were not granted in order to distance Mary from us, but on the contrary, to bring her close. Indeed, since she was totally with God, this woman is very close to us and helps us as a mother and a sister. The unique and unrepeatable position that Mary occupies in the community of believers also stems from her fundamental vocation to being mother of the Redeemer. Precisely as such, Mary is also mother of the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. It is because she is mother of the church that the Virgin is also the mother of each one of us, members of the mystical body of Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, Pope Benedict said, in these first days of the year, we are invited to consider attentively the importance of Mary's presence in the life of the church and in our own lives. Let us entrust ourselves to her that she may guide our steps in this new period of time, which the Lord gives us to live and help us to be authentic friends of his son and thus also courageous builders of his kingdom in the world, a kingdom of light and truth that from Pope Benedict on January 2nd, 2008. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Happy New Year from all of us here at the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swain and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside. So give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Let us pray. The Litany of St. Joseph with Bishop Joseph Binzer and the seminarians from Mount St. Mary Seminary. Litany of St. Joseph, Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. Christ, graciously hear us. God, the Father of heaven, have mercy on us. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy on us. God, the Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Holy Trinity, one God, have mercy on us. Holy Mary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Renowned offspring of David, pray for us. Light of patriarchs, pray for us. Spouse of the Mother of God, pray for us. Chaste guardian of the Virgin, pray for us. Foster father of the Son of God, pray for us. Diligent protector of Christ, pray for us. Head of the Holy Family, pray for us. Joseph, most just, Pray for us. Joseph, most chaste. Pray for us. Joseph, most prudent. Pray for us. Joseph, most strong. Pray for us. Joseph, most obedient. Pray for us. Joseph, most faithful. Pray for us. Mirror of patience. Pray for us. Lover of poverty. Pray for us. Model of artisans. Pray for us. Glory of home life. Pray for us. Guardian of virgins. Pray for us. Pillar of families, pray for us. Solace of the wretched, pray for us. Hope of the sick, 
pray for us. Patron of the dying, pray for us. Terror of the demons, pray for us. Protector of the Holy Church, pray for us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, spare us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, graciously hear us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. He made him the Lord of his household and prince over all his possessions. Let us pray. O God, in your ineffable providence, you were pleased to choose Blessed Joseph to be the spouse of your most holy mother. Grant, we beg you, that we may be worthy to have him for our intercessor in heaven, whom on earth we venerate as our protector. You who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying the Magnificat. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show, in which we will celebrate the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and our Mother. I'm Anna Mitchell, and today we're headed to the archives and will devote the entire hour to topics related to Our Lady. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. With us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Joe Heschmeyer. He's with Holy Family School of Faith and blogs at shamelesspopery.com. Good morning, Joe. Good to have you back. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. So we're going to be talking about the Blessed Mother Mary and Mary as our mother in faith. And let's start off this conversation with the scene of Mary at the foot of the cross. How does Jesus introduce her there as our mother in faith? Yeah, there's this fascinating transition. Um, he turns to her and says, Woman, behold your son. Speaking of the beloved disciple, and a disciple who's presented in the Gospel of John. It's, it's John himself, but it's a disciple presented as a model for us to show what it is to be beloved by Christ. Hmm. And then he turns to the beloved disciple and says to him, Behold your mother. And and what is the significance of that? Because some people out there might believe that Jesus was simply just entrusting the care of his mother to the only disciple who was there with her. Yeah, I find this to be a, a particularly ironic claim. 
Um, because many of these same critics, the ones who would dispute uh, Mary's spiritual motherhood, also claim that Mary had other children, including the Apostle James, who could have taken care of her. So it doesn't really make sense for them to claim that Mary has these other kids and that Jesus is entrusting Mary to the Apostle John because there's no one else to take care of her. So the truth is actually twofold. One is that because Mary is perpetually a virgin, she has no other children, and she does need someone to take care of her. But the second truth is that there's more to it than that. And the reason we know there's more to it than that is because other points in Scripture instruct us to take care of widows. For example, James 1.27 and 1 Timothy 5.3 both do that. Mm -hmm. And in neither case do they declare that we need to uh, take these widows as our mothers. So Jesus is saying something much more than just, hey, take care of my mom, or even let my mom live with you. He's saying, behold your mother. Like, that's got to mean more than that, because it, it on its face means more than that. Right, because in a sense, she is entrusting John, and therefore the rest of us as his church, to her care. Exactly, because he also says to her, behold your son. So it isn't just a one-directional, John, take care of Mary. There's also a profound sense in which Mary takes care of John. And so when it says that John invites Mary into his own home, it's not just that he's going to take care of her throughout the rest of her um, you know, dying days or throughout the rest of her life or something like that. And it's also he's going to learn from her, that he's going to continue to be, in a very real sense, a disciple, but now a disciple of the Blessed Mother, to learn about the life of Christ in a new and unique way. Well, let's stick with this scene on Calvary for a moment, but look at it from from another angle here. Now, you and I have spoken before about Abraham being our father in faith. So how can we compare his story with that of Mary, our mother in faith? Yeah, you know, I might actually mention something just uh, by way of background for those who who haven't listened to the other two times we talked about Mm -hmm. this general theme. Yeah. Uh, The very first time we talked— I said, basically, Jesus isn't the model of our faith. Like, we don't model our faith off of the faith of Jesus, because he didn't have faith. For the simple reason that he had the perfect knowledge and beatific vision of God, that supplants faith. Like, when Paul tells us that faith and hope will pass away in heaven, and only charity will remain, Christ already enjoys that fullness. So, he's not our model of faith. Rather, a person who's continually held up, even in the New Testament, even especially in the New Testament— is Abraham, and different reasons are given for this, but one of them is the sacrifice of Isaac. And with the sacrifice of Isaac, there's this apparent paradox that Abraham knows two things. One thing that he knows is that God is going to bless all nations through Isaac, because he's been promised that. But the other thing that he knows is that God has told him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, because God has also told him that. So he responds to this, not by trying to harmonize these two seemingly irreconcilable truths, but just trusting that God, um, in the face of this seeming absurdity, will somehow find a way for all of this to work out. And so in the book of Hebrews, he's praised, um, because this points to a belief in something like the resurrection, or or some sort of way for God to bring Isaac even back from the dead. Um, And so we know how the story ends, with the angel staying Abraham's hand, but it shows that there is this almost paradoxical faith that Isaac is supposed to be sacrificed and also that nations will be blessed through him. 
So it's, it points towards the resurrection. But also, all of this points towards Calvary. Mount Moriah points to Mount Calvary. And so um, Isaac carries the wood of the sacrifice up the hill, and then it's on the third day that they get to the top, and the angel uh, stops this from happening, and it, it signifies the resurrection. And I think that this scene at the foot of the cross is probably the most obvious event that we can point to when we when we point out Mary as being our mother in faith. And that's not even to mention the comparison in sacrificing her own son. I know that we usually compare uh, Abraham to God as our father in that sense, but in the same way, we could probably do the same for Mary, that she she sacrificed her son. And that took great faith on her part, too. But that said, we can also point to the very beginning, can't we, that that she had faith at the Annunciation. Yeah, this is exactly what she's praised, praised for by Elizabeth. Um, you know, we're used to hearing the first part, uh, blessed are you among women, and blessed mm-hmm. is the fruit of your womb. But she goes on from there and says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she has that paradoxical faith that she'll be both virgin and mother. And so that is like a very Abrahamic faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's also a particular way it's tied to the passion in Luke 2, when the prophet Simeon uh, says to Mary, so he's he's blessing the Christ child, and it says that the father and mother were amazed, meaning Joseph and Mary. Um, But then he turns to just Mary and says, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. So Mary's soul is in a unique way um, united to Christ's. And all of this is through faith. All of this is a spiritual union with him, uh, closely tied and all bound up right there in the cross and in the Passion. Right, because as you say, since she is not God, she doesn't have that fullness of faith. I've got one more question for you, uh, Joe, because we're running out of time, because I want to shift to the the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of, shall we call it, weird imagery all over that book. So where can we find Mary as our mother in faith in that book? Yes, Revelation chapter 12 clearly depicts the mother of God, or the mother of Jesus specifically, as being enthroned in heaven. And in verse 17, Revelation 12:17, it refers to all of those who are Christians and hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ as her children. Some beautiful imagery, and I really encourage listeners to read your entire post on this. It's over at Shameless Popery, which we'll link at sunrisemorningshow.com. Joe, it was good to have you back. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Stay tuned for more of the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, order the free digital training and facilitator manual, lordteachmetopray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. 
on the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. I used to wonder if God really cared, why it mattered what church I went to, or why I even bothered with faith at all. Then I started praying more often and going to church. What happened? My relationships got stronger, and I felt a peace that I never had before. I realized that God in my life was the difference between occasionally being happy and finding lasting joy. If you're looking for something more, check out catholicscomehome.com. Father Robert Nixon is back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show. He's a Benedictine monk at New Norcia in Australia. He's a translator of, among others, Crown of the Virgin by St. Ildefonsus of Toledo. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Eddie. It's good to have you back. And we are looking at the second gemstone setting in the Crown of the Virgin, except it's not a gem. It's the Morning Star Sirius. Can you talk about how he finds this star so fitting for her crown in light of her role in the nativity and being yeah. the mother of God? So this, uh, any, this star is particularly appropriate as a symbolic representation of the role of Mary in our spiritual life. Because just as the morning star is kind of like the herald of the coming of the sun, which illuminates everything and brings to the world its uh, kind of superb radiance, this morning star um, is of great beauty and brightness in itself, and it, it is like the, the, the herald, almost like the mother of the sun. And in the same way, um, Mary became the mother of the incarnate God, the mother of the one who would save the entire world and illuminate all the darkness uh, in which we've been living until, until his arrival. So I think this morning star is, is such a wonderful image, you know, um, it's the, the the brightness of the star of the morning star is not an overwhelming brightness like the brightness of the sun, but it's it's still beautiful and radiant, and this applies so uh, so fittingly to the Blessed Virgin. I feel yeah to the Mother of God. You know, he brings up a couple of times in this reflection the idea of joining the lowest to the highest. And the yeah. Blessed Mother does that quite literally, doesn't she, in being the one who brings God into humanity? Well, absolutely she does, because when when God chose the person who was going to be the mother of his only begotten son, um, of course he had to choose someone who excelled in all virtues and who was perfectly pure from the stain of sin. But he chose someone who was uh, of a humble position and when the angel appears, you know, uh, Mary says, behold the humility of your servant. And, and this is something which comes through. So this, you know, um, infinitely dramatic uh, move which God makes in becoming incarnate in human flesh, you know, you think this God who is the supreme universe, the supreme ruler of the whole universe, the supreme creator, 
um, he resolves to become just an infant, infant baby, and he does this through the Virgin Mary, and he becomes someone that she can kiss, that she can hold in her hand. So I think this is the most awesome of all mysteries, the incarnation of God, and this could only happen through the consent, through the willingness of Mary. And, of course, when she consented, she didn't fully understand what she was undertaking. But she knew that it was the will of God. She knew it was what she had to do. You know, it's really beautiful. She's called Throne of of Wisdom, I believe. And you think about the Blessed Mother as a throne, like literally the lap yeah. for a baby to be held. Indeed. And and this is something which um, which comes up quite a lot in the writing of St. Ildefonsus and and elsewhere, the, the idea of the Blessed Virgin Mary as being like a throne of the entire divinity. And you think, this is God who is immense, who is infinite beyond all measure. And yet he seats himself uh, as a small infant upon the lap of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is a truly awe-inspiring thing. And I think it speaks to every every Catholic, because we also encounter God Uh, not only in his awesome power, but in these very small and humble ways, in our dealings with other people, in our experiences of life and so forth. And I think this is the key to the great mystery of the Incarnation, that God is amongst us, that he's walking among us in the present time, that he's not only some remote and omnipotent being, but he's right here beside us. And, you know, sometimes we hold him in our own arms. So it's, it's quite amazing, very inspiring. And, you know, St. Ildefonsus really, uh, really takes this theme up and speaks of it so beautifully. He writes, Indeed, you gave birth to the God of heaven, the king of the earth, the Lord of the universe, the healer of the world, the destroyer of death, the restorer of life, the author of eternity. In conceiving him, you (laughs) felt no sinful lust, and in bearing him, you felt no pain. For the blessed birth of our Savior— I offer this jubilant hymn of praise. And Father, we talked a little bit about this hymn the last time we were together, but with a little bit of a different focus. Can you focus on on this hymn in light of the Incarnation? Yeah. So um, as as you've just read before, um, the infant which Mary bore and which she held in her arms was the Lord of the universe, the destroyer of death and the restorer of life. And in this wonderful hymn, um, he goes on and he speaks with such wonderful beauty. If I could just read a little bit. So, behold the glory of fruitfulness and the honor of unstained virginity, united in the graceful body of the Virgin Mother. This miraculous glory is as the vitreous brilliance, which remains in the richly hued crimson of the rose, and as in the tint and clarity of whiteness abides, unseen yet radiant in the sable ebony's obsidian glow. So he's talking about how mysteriously in this humble maiden, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was, you know, just, I guess, a a poor Jewish girl who no one thought very much of, yet she had this perfection, this absolute fullness of grace and freedom from sin, which made her to be the mirror, the reflection, and ultimately the mother of the Supreme Lord of the whole universe. I think this is just an awesome thing to think about and should really draw us in prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary because she's so approachable as being one of us in so many ways, as being, you know, just a a regular person. 
But on the other hand, of having this amazing, intimate, close connection to the God who is the ruler of the universe. Yeah, and in fact, so I think it, it, it makes it, it makes sense for all of us to pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary whenever we're in times of trouble or need. Yes, and there is a beautiful prayer at the end of, of this reflection. I just want to ask you one more thing before we let you go, um, because I just I found this so incredible. He writes, after God himself, you are the cause of all goodness. You know, I think often even we as Catholics who venerate the Blessed Mother often think of her as as more of a, a passive vessel um, than someone who is the cause of all yeah. goodness. But in fact, by her fiat, she we, is. We Indeed, indeed. You know, and, and we sometimes imagine that the incarnation, that the passion was just a one-person job. And, I mean, in a sense it was. Jesus Christ was the, the central person, but Mary was there all the time. She had a part in all of these things, and particularly in the incarnation, you know. So it was through her consent, through her actual bearing of this child, that God came into the world, that salvation came to us. So I think, you know, um, whatever we can say in praise of the Blessed Virgin, there's an expression in Latin, numquam satis, it's never enough. We can never praise her enough. It's called Crown of the Virgin, an ancient meditation on Mary's beauty, virtue, and sanctity. It's by St. Ildefonsus of Toledo and translated by Father Robert Nixon. And we've got it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Some beautiful meditations, especially for this feast day. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Annie, and God bless you, and God bless all your listeners. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's S-O-N-RiseMorningShow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Ahikar is a name not familiar to us, but he was a nephew of Tobit. Ahikar's biography was famous in Assyrian literature long before the book of Tobit was written. The title of this famous biography was The Story and the Wisdom of Ahikar. Because he had no children, Ahikar adopted his son Nadin and groomed him to serve in the royal court. But Nadin was not a gracious man. He later schemed to ruin his uncle. Ahikar was arrested and condemned to die. But the officer in charge spares his life because Ahikar once saved his life. The king later restores Ahikar to his post, and Nadin, the wicked nephew, is put into prison. Ahikar means, my brother is honorable. The name is a good fit for this character. Even though we might not share the name, we can certainly share 
his character. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Happy to welcome back Dr. Anthony Lillis, his book, Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. Dr. Lillis, welcome back. It's great to be with you, Annie. Thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. Dr. Lillis, what is the importance of our Blessed Mother Mary in Christian contemplation and mental prayer? She accompanies us in the deepest parts of prayer. It, it, we, we never really go to Jesus alone in a special way. His, his mother is with him. And, uh, and so she accompanies us. She walks with us. She teaches us the deep secrets of our faith. The Carthusians, in fact, before they leave their cell or go into their cell, they have a little um, uh, kind of kneeler with an image to Our Lady, and they ask Our Lady to be with them in their comings and goings, uh, precisely because their whole life is meant to be dedicated to prayer, and they know that she can teach that. Mm, That's beautiful. Now, Pope St. John Paul II took totus tuus as his pontifical motto, and of course, that's a reference to the role of total consecration to Jesus through Mary in his own life. What exactly is Marian consecration, and where did it come from? Marian consecration is uh, actually a consecration to Jesus through Mary, and um, it was latent in the very first Marian prayers of the Church uh, that go back way to the beginning of the first centuries of Christianity. However, uh, it was uh, in the teaching of St. Louis de Montfort, uh, he was a, uh, a kind of a priest missionary who was interested in the renewal of the Church in his home country at a time uh, where uh, there, there was a little bit of uh, laxity and, and, uh, and questions about the Church. And he discovered that devotion to Our Lady set his own life on fire. This raises a big question. Uh, a lot of people in their devotion to Our Lady does Our Lady get in the way of Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it Mary uh, uh, or, or Jesus? And in this instance, uh, what he discovered is that actually Mary takes you closer to Jesus. And if you entrust yourself to her and, uh, and, and kind of have confidence in her, accept her as your, your mother, in fact, take her into your home the way the beloved disciple took her into her home at the foot of the cross, um, your, your whole life is disposed to a more radical living of, the faith, of your faith in Christ. She uh, um, performs the, uh, a ministry of mother in your life that helps bring your faith to, to birth. So when we consecrate ourselves to Our Lady, uh, Our Lady takes us closer to Jesus. Continuing our discussion on the role of Our Lady in contemplative prayer, let's reflect on the sorrowful mother at the foot of the cross. How was a new type of maternity revealed to us there? This refers to the the fact that Jesus, before he died, while he was suffering on the cross, looked at his mother and um, the disciple whom he was loved. They were standing at the foot of the cross standing is a sign of faith. So they have faith at the foot of the cross. And Jesus, uh, looking at, at them, told his mother, Woman, behold your son. And in, in that moment, he was dispossessing himself, even of his mother, as he died. 
but he was doing it in the most beautiful way. Uh, he didn't just leave her, uh, but he entrusted her to the disciple whom he loved. And in doing that, uh, the, uh, what he was doing had incredible theological significance. By calling her woman, uh, this was another, a title he'd used for her in Cana, he was referring to her as a new kind of Eve. Uh, Eve is also called woman in the Bible, and that is a, uh, the mother of the living. And so he entrusts his mother, Mary, to his disciples specifically as the, the uh, mother of the living. And, um, and the point is, when we go to the cross, uh, re- renounce and, uh, uh, things in our lives or make sacrifices or offer things up, even as we're dispossessing ourselves, Jesus has given us his mother. And, uh, and that mother helps us make that sacrifice just like she helped Jesus make his sacrifice. And I want to ask you, too, I mean, obviously, her role at the foot of the cross being uh, an instrumental part of this question, but how is Mary, in in the course of, of her entire life, the supreme model of being a Christian disciple? Well, it's an interesting thing as you go to follow the Lord. Um, uh, it, the closer you draw to Him, you suffer what may seem to be mysterious rejections along the way. Sometimes he seems absent, and sometimes he relates to you in a way so unfamiliar, you're wondering whether or not he's even there. And uh, if you've had any of those experiences, if you study the scriptures closely, this is exactly what happens to Mary. Uh, Mary, who searches for her son uh, in the uh, in the temple uh, uh, to find him, and he, instead of uh, being grateful about being found or sorry that you left her, uh, he almost rebukes or corrects yeah. her. Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? And Or, or uh, the people who cried out, you know, um, uh, your mother and brothers are, are outside, and, and those who do the will of my father are, are my mother and brother. And uh, he, he seems to distance himself. And John, the Pro, uh, excuse me, John Paul II observed the same thing. And he he associates it with John Paul the uh, John uh, the Cross's doctrine of the dark night, where God mm. is drawing close to us in a beautiful new way, and as He does, He transforms us. So just like this happened in Mary's life, it happens in our life too, and and it's not accidental, and we haven't done something wrong. God is doing something beautiful in our hearts, just like He did for His own mother Mary. Now, we've talked before about Mary as the gate of heaven. You know, she was the means by which our Lord came to earth, and so is the best means by which we on earth now can reach our Lord in heaven. How does this idea tie into Marian consecration? Uh, well, uh, thank you for this question. It's, it's a really beautiful question. In Marian consecration, uh, what we in fact, do is we we set ourselves also at the foot of the cross in the place of the beloved disciple or with the beloved disciple and just like he um, he accepted her into his home we accept her into our heart and we do this so that she can accompany us in our own sacrifice Elizabeth of the Trinity saw the supreme moment of sacrifice our supreme offering 
being uh, the same as Christ. Christ gave his supreme offering at the moment of his death with Mary standing at the foot of the cross. And so, too, when we invite Mary into our hearts in our supreme moment, the moment of our death, she, uh, she's praying for us, and she will stand with us, uh, uh, interceding that we receive all the graces we need. She, in a way, uh, maternally uh, helps uh, give birth to us in heaven. Uh, there's uh, the, the bond between uh, the natural mother and a child is no less real. In fact, it's even deeper between the spiritual motherhood and us, uh, the children of the Church, and in a mysterious way because of Jesus, uh, uh, her children, too. Would you say in a way, then, that, that the Blessed Mother stands at the foot of our crosses, too? I think that's a very powerful image, and I think it's true. I think she's with us uh, uh, in ways, and even if somebody was to uh, believe in her son but never acknowledge her presence, I think she's still there praying because mm-hmm. she loves her son and she loves her son's work, and so she's always at prayer and, and deeply dedicated for every soul. But I think it increases her joy and her freedom in our life when we acknowledge that presence and um, and, and avail ourselves of of her presence, her, her prayers for us, her maternal love. I think it's transforming for our hearts. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about Marian consecration and St. Louis de Montfort, who did not invent Marian consecration, but certainly is probably the most famous of the um, the purveyors of, of Marian consecration, I guess you could say. What did he have to say about how Marian consecration, consecration to Jesus through Mary, how does that actually help us in our own prayers? Oh, St. Louis de Montfort, he viewed um, just as Jesus dispossessed everything to give us his mother so that, so that we have a real spiritual mother in Mary. Mary uh, is also dispossesses, dispossesses everything and gives it to us. She holds nothing back in her motherhood, just like a good mother doesn't hold anything back for her, to her baby. Uh, uh, Mary doesn't hold anything back. And one of the things she, uh, she gives us is uh, uh, she, she gives us her prayer. And giving us her prayer, she gives us the prayer of Jesus. Hmm. And, uh, and, and so she enables us to, to identify uh, the movement of our heart with the movement of his, uh, and she does this by giving us her movement of heart, uh, uh, the movement of heart that carried her uh, uh, all the way to the cross of her son so that she could stand there firm. And, and, um, and, and she wants us to learn that same movement of prayer. Um, Elizabeth of the Trinity put it in terms of music, that there's a mysterious song that only Mary knows, that only Mary heard from Jesus. Uh, because she stood at the foot of the cross, and and she wants to our mother Mary wants to teach us the song that Jesus sang to the Father from the cross. She knows it because she heard it, and she's the one who can pass it on to us. The book is Fire from Above: Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. One of my favorite topics: Marian consecration and Our Lady in Prayer. And uh, Anthony Lillis, we will have this book linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. Have a good morning. 
You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 35 minutes past the hour. This is Father Rob Chat with a Catechism Moment. When we gather for the Mass or any other liturgical celebration in the Church, sometimes we ask ourselves, what are we doing here? What is the significance of doing this as a community? Did we come here to get something like a good feeling, or just to receive the body and blood of Christ, or have we come to give something? In paragraph 1069 of the Catechism, we find some answers. There we read that the word liturgy means a public work or a service on behalf of the people. Paragraph 1073 adds that the liturgy is a participation in Christ's own prayer addressed to the Father and the Holy Spirit. So in the liturgy, the inner man is rooted and grounded in the great love with which the Father loved us in his beloved Son. In answer to the question, what are we doing here? The response is that, we, as the baptized, offer a selfless act of worship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to God the Father. The communal significance is that the baptized, led by the priest, stand before the Lord in praise and humble submission. We are sinners, but we are also struggling to do God's will in our lives. Because of this, we are participants in the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ because he has given us a role to play. And in his great love, he gives us in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist the body and blood of his Son to restore us to his grace and give us courage and strength in our journey of faith. In the end, the liturgy of the Church is not only our work, but it's also God's gift in the Holy Spirit for us so that we can properly shape our lives and remember the good things that the Lord has done and will continue to do for us, his children. It's the Sunrise Morning Show, and Mike Aquilina is back with us from FathersOfTheChurch.com, author of many, many books, including, most pertinent to this discussion, co-author of Keeping Mary Close, Devotion to Our Lady Through the Ages. Mike, good morning. Morning, Annie. So we're in the month of May, so we're going to be talking about our Lady and the early church. What was the role of Mary in the days following the resurrection and the ascension? Well, we can we can kind of uh, see that in the Gospels themselves, and really throughout the New Testament. Um, if we if we look through the Gospels, we see that Mary plays a very prominent role, especially at the beginning of Saint Luke's Gospel. But she's also there in a in a big way at the beginning of Saint Matthew's Gospel, at the beginning of Saint John's Gospel, because she launches our Lord's public ministry uh, with the miracle of the at the wedding feast at Cana, uh, and uh, and and she's she's just this this quiet presence. We get to the Acts of the Apostles, and in that opening chapter, we see that the Church is gathered there with Mary, with the Blessed Mother, with the Mother of Jesus. Uh, St. Paul, when he comes to preach the Gospel to the Galatians, he finds that, that he has to do so in reference to the Blessed Virgin, you know, that, um, that, that he can't tell the story of Jesus without mentioning that he's born of a woman. You know, this is the guarantor of Jesus' true humanity. At the same time, 
it's the guarantor of his true divinity because uh, because he was he did not have um, uh, ordinary fatherhood in the in the in the human sense. And then we get to the end of the the New Testament, and we see Our Lady there in the the, the famous scene of the woman clothed with the sun uh, in John's vision of heaven. So so she's there throughout the New Testament, and that gives us a good idea of her importance in the early church. That of course is uh, present as well in the same quiet way in the succeeding generations, because Our Lady plays an important role in the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, and others in those, in, those, uh, in those first generations of Christianity. Yeah, and I want to ask you about those, those documents. Do you see a lot of ancient documents from the Fathers of the Church mentioning the Blessed Mother? Well, yeah, and, and, and just making quiet reference to her in many ways. You know, St. Ignatius of Antioch talks about the mysteries that were hidden uh, from the prince of this world, the things that Satan could not figure out because uh, they were protected by, by, um, by, by God. Uh, and, and among them uh, is the virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, there are also many anonymous or pseudonymous documents from the early Church, like the Ascension of Isaiah, which is a first-century text, um, likely written in Egypt. Uh, and, and these early documents also uh, make reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary, especially her virginity, her perpetual virginity, and the virgin birth. All of these things uh, feel that they have to make reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary as they tell the story of Jesus. She's such an integral part of the Gospel, because again, uh, the fact that she was the Mother of God is the guarantor of Jesus' humanity and his divinity. She is the pivotal figure there in his story. Well, Mike, tell us about the council in which we first kind of see Marian doctrine proclaimed. Can you repeat that, please? I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Zoned for a second. (laughs) Not a problem. So, Mike, can you tell us about the council in which we first see Marian doctrine proclaimed? Well, I, I think I think it's really there in all of the councils because it's implicit in the story of Jesus, as I said before. But you see popular piety, and you see popular devotion, and you see you see her as um, as part of the doctrinal proclamation of the whole church throughout that time, that time period, uh, as we as we go through the first councils, uh, uh, the Nicaea and Constantinople, uh, for example. Uh, but really, it, it comes to um, it comes to a boil. You can you might say at 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 Ephesus because. The, the Council of Ephesus was convened to deal with the Nestorian heresy. Uh, the Nestorian heresy was, a, was, a, was, was an error about the person of Jesus Christ and the nature and, and, and his dual nature. Um, Man, I keep I keep blanking here. Um, that the Council of Ephesus um, was 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 convened to deal with the Nestorian heresy, and uh, and and that the particular error of Nestorius uh, was that. Um, w- w- Gosh, Annie, I am so, um, so these Christological heresies. Okay. Oh man, I understand. Okay. This is why council... I let you answer these questions, and I don't have to do it myself. <laughs> okay. The Council of Ephesus in 431 was convened to deal with the Nestorian heresy. Uh, the patriarch Nestorius in Constantinople denied 
Mary the title Mother of God, and that caused quite a controversy. Uh, the people were intensely devoted to her under this title, and they had called her by that title for centuries, and here was Nestorius saying they shouldn't be doing that. So that council at Ephesus was an intensely Marian council, and it was led by uh, one of the great biblical scholars of the early church, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, he, was, he was profoundly influential in, uh, in, in all subsequent uh, doctrine, uh, not only about the Blessed Virgin Mary, but also about Jesus Christ. It's a Christological council because it's dealing with Jesus, who he is, you know, what's his nature, you know, what do we call this person, and why, why do we address him as we do? St. Cyril pointed out um, that, that Mary deserved the title Mother of God. She did not precede God in time the way earthly mothers precede their children in time. But Mary mothered God because Mary mothered Jesus Christ, and he is true God and true man. Mike, did the early church see the Blessed Mother as, as an advocate, as an intercessor? Oh, yeah. You know, and we see that in the prayer of the Church from very early on. From the, from the 200s, we have the prayer that we, the Church still prays today. It's called the Subtuum Presidium. Uh, we fly to your patronage, O Holy Mother of God, despise not our petitions and our necessity. Deliver us from all danger, O ever glorious and blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, we, we, we know that, that prayer, from many manuscripts from the ancient Church and in many different languages. So obviously it was very popular. The oldest version we have of it is a Coptic manuscript that was found in the deserts of Egypt, and again, it comes from the 200s. So that's very early, um, and it, uh, you know, that, that document in particular was found among liturgical texts, and liturgical texts are by their nature conservative. So, so it's probably something that was already well established by the time it was set down in writing. Very interesting. Now, Mike, you know, today we have all kinds of, of aids to Marian devotion, right? We have, we have the rosary, we have scapulars and the like. What did devotion look like in the early church when it came to the Blessed Mother? Well, you know, it, it looked it looked pretty much the same. There were there, there were uh, souvenirs and tchotchkes and, uh, and and religious mementos that people picked up on pilgrimage. So we do find Mary on on little items that are uh, that that have been found from that period. Uh, you know, the the little devotional items like medals and that sort of thing. Uh, but also, it took the form of hymns because. Even people who couldn't read could still sing, and they would sing hymns to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, it, took form, it took the form of pilgrimage. People devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary went on pilgrimage to the sites related to her life. Some of these sites were in the Holy Land. Others were in Egypt. There were, uh, you know, from, the, from the time when the Holy Family fled to Egypt, there were sites uh, that, were, that were associated with the Holy Family from tradition. Uh, people made pilgrimage there in the time of the Church Fathers, People still make pilgrimage there today. Um, you know, there are many Marian sites uh, in, in, in Egypt. Um, also, there were apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary reported throughout the time of the Church Fathers, and then there were pilgrimages to those sites as well. So it, it took a lot of the same forms that it takes today. There, there were popular devotions. There were popular prayers. There were popular hymns. There was pilgrimage. We love our mother, and we express that love in so many different ways. The month of May is a time when we can kind of return to our roots and express our love to the Blessed Virgin um, in, in all of these ways that are traditional. 
nice to know that the Apostolic Fathers actually did <clears throat> actually did have a devotion to the Blessed Mother. That seems like something that's been downplayed up until recent years. Uh, well, you know, I, I think that that uh, we did go through a period when it um, when, when it, it it didn't receive the attention it deserved, and 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 that certainly um, and we're we're doing our best to remedy that in our own day. We fly to her patronage today once again, and very often. Very often, we've been talking to Mike Aquilina, co-author of Keeping Mary Close: Devotion to Our Lady Through the Ages. And Mike, if listeners want to pick up a copy of that book or any of your other books, where can they connect with you? Fathersofthechurch.com. I'm Anna Mitchell. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside, so give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. How is it possible that God created everything? Why do I need to confess my sins to why a priest? Why is Catholic Church so unwilling to recognize the Catholic Church is too rich? Catholics worship Mary and our community. As far as I'm concerned, all religions are equal. You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders. Today, 2 p.m. Eastern, on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're joined now by Dr. Jim Papandrea. His book from Catholic Answers Press, Handed Down, The Catholic Faith of the Early Christians. Dr. Papandrea, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. So let's talk about our Blessed Mother Mary today. And to start things off, of course, a lot of Protestants find Mary to be a major sticking point when it comes to their views about Catholicism, you know, thinking that, that we Catholics really kind of elevate her too much in their per, from their perspective. But wasn't that something that happened from the beginning of the Church, Dr. Papandrea? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, in fact, that's kind of the point of the whole book handed down in, in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of the things that, that uh, people mistakenly think were added to the Church and to the tradition later uh, we're actually very ancient and, and uh, we're part of our faith from the very beginning. And devotion to our Blessed Mother is one of those things. It's one of those things that's been around since the beginning of the Church. And it's it's funny because 
Protestants will agree on the importance of Mary, uh, but there does seem to be a concern that maybe we take it too far, but that concern is really born out of, uh, you know, a lack of information because they really don't understand uh, the Catholic doctrines about Mary and Catholic devotion to Mary. You know, you you talked about this being ancient, and of course we talk about that in terms of, of the early Church being ancient, but this goes even further back. How was Mary's role in salvation history connected to the Old Testament? Oh, that's a, that's a great question, and um, the early Church Fathers talked about this, especially Irenaeus and then those that, that followed him, and uh, made a lot of really um, sort of amazing and beautiful connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and specifically uh, regarding Mary. So, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the vessel that held the tablets of the, the words of God in the Ten Commandments. And in the New Testament, we find Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the New Covenant. She was the vessel that held the living Word of God in the Incarnation in her womb. Um, and so we have these beautiful connections uh, where Mary fulfills uh, things that were foreshadowed in the Old Testament, or in fact Mary uh, corrects things that went wrong in the Old Testament or fixes what, what was broken. One of my favorite images of Mary is the, the untire of knots, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the knot that was tied with the sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. That knot is untied through Mary's role in the Incarnation which is why she's known sometimes as the New Eve. Now, Dr. Papandrea, why is Mary considered our mother? She is our mother. Uh, She is the mother of the Church uh, for a couple of reasons that we find in the New Testament, uh, one of which is uh, Jesus from the cross uh, entrusted his mother to the Apostle John. And in in that context, John sort of takes the role as representing all of us. And so she becomes the mother of the Church. And then that idea is confirmed in the book of Revelation, uh, where we we read about the woman crowned with 12 stars who gave birth to to the male child. And obviously this is an an image of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. And it says that uh, that the the dragon, the devil, evil, uh, tried to uh, kill the child or consume the child but was unsuccessful. This is a reference to... Herod's attempt to kill Jesus as a baby when he uh, had the babies of Bethlehem murdered. And then it says that the the dragon then turned his attention to her other children. Um, And uh, and this is a reference to the Church and the persecution of the Church. So in other words, when when the devil couldn't get Jesus, he turned toward uh, Jesus' followers, the Church, and persecuted the Church through the Roman Empire. That's pretty much what the book of Revelation is about. When the writer of Revelation calls the Church her other children, we're being told right there in inspired Scripture that that Mary is the mother of the Church. She's our mother as well. Well, let's talk about the Immaculate Conception for a moment here, Doc, because um, not something that's, that's mentioned in Scripture, that Mary was conceived without sin, but why is it necessary for her to be conceived without sin, to be the mother of God? Well, that goes back to the, um, you know, the idea of her as the ark, her as the vessel um, through which the incarnation takes place. And so because Jesus is without sin, because his conception is uh, miraculous and he's born, uh, obviously, without original sin, he comes into the world uh, through a pure and perfect vessel, 
And so uh, Mary also is born without original sin so that she can be the pure vessel for the perfect uh, Son of God to come into the world. And so we have this, uh, this concept going all the way back to the beginning of the Church. Um, we can see it specifically in a, in a document uh, that is meant to be sort of a prequel to the Gospels. I talk about that in the book. Um, but in this document, we read that, you know, Christians in the early Church believed, uh, as we still believe, that Mary was conceived miraculously, uh, not virginally the way Jesus was, but miraculously in a way that, that resulted in her birth uh, without original sin. So if Mary was conceived without sin and therefore was was perfect in that sense, does that put her on par with God? And that's what we have to clarify, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. uh, it really does not. I mean, it, it does not make Mary divine. I mean, Mary is, is unique among humanity, um, but she's not Jesus. I mean, Jesus is divine. Mary is not. Uh, Mary is what we would call full of grace, right? Meaning... Uh, entirely sanctified and uh and without sin but she still needed a savior and uh and her son is her savior uh she was just sort of saved uh proactively as it were so that she could be the perfect vessel for the incarnation dr papandrea how is it possible that that mary was and is forever a virgin well uh the perpetual virginity of mary is is an interesting concept because this is one of those things that the Protestant reformers never uh questioned never argued against they all accepted it. The title for Mary as ever virgin is something that also goes back to the early church and was never really argued about. It was never a debate. Go back to that document, the prequel to the gospels and there we read that Mary was a virgin not only before Jesus was born but even after Jesus was born, which of course is a miracle. But then we also believe that she had no other children after Jesus, and so that she uh, remained a virgin and she was uh, committed to, you know, a life of virginity and, uh, and celibacy throughout the rest of her life. A good overview of apologetics based on our early church fathers from Dr. Jim Papandrea. His book is Handed Down, The Catholic Faith of the Early Christians. Doc, thanks so much. All right, thanks. That'll do it for this edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks for listening. For all our guests, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.